looking at a prayer life. What is required of us to have a effectual prayer life? Um, because the answer to prayer is God's promise to those who meet the condition. And we have seen the development of this uh, going all the way back to the Father sending the Son, the Son being obedient to the Father, making a provision for our salvation. We've seen the necessity of salvific faith in that sacrifice and that provision uh, and that power of the resurrection. And we also have seen that God will uh, grant to us his, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that out of that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we now have our conditions to meet. We have our responsibilities to, to conform to his uh, expectations of what it means to be saints, to be holy ones, separated, set apart, separate from the world to his praise, glory, and service. We have looked at several, and this very specific one I pulled out. Uh, I could have easily wrapped it under two or three of the other categories where we've already studied, but I want to pull it out very specifically um, because of the nature in which Jesus Christ presents it here. Uh, it certainly could be handled under the concept of bearing fruit. It could be handled under the, under the principle that we are called to be obeying his commands. Uh, certainly that is, it, should, it could also be put in that we do the works of the Father. Well, we have studied all three of those as preconditions to our praying. And we could certainly fit the idea that is presented here in John 15, 26 um, uh, and 27. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. That we have responsibility to bear witness. And yes, that is a command of God. We'll look at that here shortly. Uh, it is an expectation of his and it is also a requirement if we are really going to have an active, vital, uh, effectual prayer life. That then, as we see our prayers met, bring us to the Re, the, the, the full object, uh, ob, object of all of this, of, of what God wants for us, and that is fullness of joy, perfect peace, and the Father's love. And so we have seen these, and we're going to pull those out when I get back and look at all three of those, um, but we have seen that this uh, is necessary for that kind of praying. And we sometimes don't associate our ambassadorial role for God with our prayer life. We think the one is to help the other. We don't think of the one to support and, and qualify us for the other. And we have rather a very symbiotic relationship between your witnessing of Christ and your praying to Christ, including praying for your witness. And so we're going to be talking about that extensively this morning, and that's where I'm going to put a lot of my energy. But we do want to go into the foundation of this, that as, as a command of God, as part of the fruit that we are called to bear, and also of the necessity of doing the works of the Father. Now, the, con the, the circumstances could easily be, and some commentators have actually said, well, this really only applies to the eyewitnesses of Christ's Ministry, And they build that off of the idea that Christ has just com finished communicating to them what he has done. And so let's back up a little bit 
and look into this. And verse, we're going to pick up in verse 21. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And verse 22 is where it gets uh, very specific. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. It is very clear that what Christ is communicating to them is really about they, their law, which tells us immediately who he's talking about. He's not talking about the unregenerate in a, in a large group, but rather a very specific uh, segment of the unregenerate, and that is the religious Israel that rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah, promised to them from their law. And so some would say, based upon those statements of Jesus Christ, that the necessity of witness is really for the disciples to the unbelieving Jews, which they did witness there, but certainly we understand the expansiveness of what Christ's statement is for all believers in all time, that we are to be a witness of Christ. And we're going to talk about why uh, by looking back into Jesus' role. So he talks about what I have spoken to them and what I have shown them. So they have seen the works, the, that is, he has done among them the works no one else did. We've studied that when we talked about the works. And they've also heard from me the word, uh, and they rejected both. They rejected the work I've done, they rejected the teaching that I've done. And I believe this is going to help us be directive in understanding what it means to witness of Christ. That we are the ambassadors that, of his kingdom, of who Jesus Christ is, what he has done, and his invitation to others to come into that relationship with him. And so we see that it was his word and his actions, what he has done, his works. And if I hadn't done those, uh, there would be no sin. And the sin he's talking about isn't the sin in general that we talk about all our sinners, but rather the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. They would not have that sin if Jesus Christ hadn't done in front of them what he has done in front of them. But they have this very heavy weight of sin. And this is fascinating when we get into the book of Acts because it is that very sin that the apostles and even Paul, but especially the apostles, just keep hammering the Jews with. You crucified him. You crucified him. God raised him from the dead. You crucified him. You hung him on a cross. God raised him from the dead. Over and over and over again, as they testify, they keep putting that weight of the crucifixion on the Jews. It is the sin of hating Jesus for no reason. You have crucified him. They have taken this very much to heart and said, listen, this is the sin they're guilty of, and we're going to just plow into them, not on general sinfulness. They, when you get into the Pauline teaching that is Gentilian, we're going to find him speaking generally of Adam's sin. We're going to hear him talk about um, your own sin, uh, and it's a sin that we, are, that we engage in where we have this 
moral dilemma in us that we want to do good, we know what good is, but we always choose to do evil. And so Paul's going to develop those concepts, and we, when we hear his testimony to the Gentiles, it's a little different. But in the early part of Acts, where we find Peter and the apostles and, and Stephen and all of these, uh, they are always speaking largely to a Jewish community. It is this Jesus whom you crucified. You hated him without a cause. You have this heavy sin on your shoulders and we're going to use that. You can say you're religious and that you keep the law, but in all of your spiritual arrogance, you crucified the Holy One of Israel. Remember, we were talking about a very, very, very self-righteous people who would argue whether they are sinners or not because they have kept the law. Jesus Christ himself has encountered such a person, hasn't he? The rich young ruler comes and says, what must I do in eternal life? He says, well, have you kept the law? I've kept these since I was a youth. And Jesus Christ says, well, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come follow me. Three-part one thing you're missing. You're trusting in your wealth. And so this is the nature he was self-justifying that I have kept the law and the prophets since I was a youth. And that's whom uh, the disciples had to first testify to there in Jerusalem. After all, if you think about their first audience where thousands got saved, what were they all there to do? They were all there for a purpose of keeping the law. These were observant Jews. They weren't out there, they weren't in Rome, they weren't, they weren't over there in Athens, they weren't in, 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 in any other community that they didn't make the pilgrimage. These are people that made the pilgrimage from all over the world, had come there. These were observant Jews who were wanting to keep the law and the commandments, and what are you going to confront them with? You killed Jesus, you killed the Messiah, you murdered him. We're going to put that sin, and that's really the sin that Jesus Christ is communicating here. It's not that people are going to be sinless without Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He says this is the sin of hating Christ without a cause, of rejecting him as your Messiah. They're guilty of that, and so the disciples are going to employ that. And, and again, when we move from that to the, to the ministry of the Gentile, you'll see that seldom used. But there is an understanding that he has put, put, taken on my sin, that his, my sin necessitated his death. Okay? If I hadn't sinned, he wouldn't have had to die for me, but he did have to die for me because I am a sinner. So it's not that we are dismissing sin. So we're going to talk about that a little bit in our witnessing that it needs to be there. So we come to Jesus' words. It is by my Words that they rejected is by my works, what I have done among them, that puts them in this condition of complete guilt that they have no excuse for. Uh, there is no excuse for this sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. And this, I believe, is the measure of our witness. This description, do the people in your life have no excuse for rejecting Jesus Christ. As a pastor, and even as a young person, before I was a pastor, um, it's not a new excuse. It's a very, very, very old one. And that is that the church is full of hypocrites. Why would I want to go there? And my answer is usually, well, we don't really want you there either. 
we'd rather you get saved here now and not put another hypocrite in the church. What is the foundation of that excuse? The foundation of that excuse, which is not unfounded, frankly, is that we gather together and claim Jesus Christ's name and we are not speaking the words of God in public and we are not doing the work of God in a public fashion. We are not doing the things among them that would prevent them from believing in Jesus Christ. That is, that we are, we're not going to engage in this kind of activity so that when they look at our lives and they hear our words, they are rejecting Jesus Christ for no better reason than their own hatred of him. Not because of anything we've said, not because of anything we've done. And we often look at this from the positive, and and I'm going to do that here shortly, of what we should be saying and should be doing. But I want to remind you of the consequence of not doing it. I want to start there. That by not doing that, we are giving them excuse. They are hating Christ for a reason. And so when I engage people, and and invariably they they know the, the... events of history to pick on. They talk about the Inquisition and they talk about the Holy Wars. And of course to them, um, the Catholic Church is the embodiment and sometimes singularly, and their activities are singularly representative of Christianity. And so I wholeheartedly condemn those activities right along with them. And then I tell them very, very honestly that that is not Christianity. That by that point in time, um, that did, that, though they used the terminology Christian, they used the terminology church, they were far from either. And so when we represent Christ, we are, we are having to deal with that history in which those who have carried the name of Christian, the, the term church, uh, have soiled those names with words and actions that the world looks at and says, that's supposed to be better than everyone else? It's, I find it sometimes more disturbing and worse. And that's still true today when all my adult life I have been hearing the statistics that the divorce rate among Christians is no different than the divorce rate among unbelievers that the, that the suicide rate among Christians is not that distinct from the suicide rate among unbelievers. That, and, and you hear those kind of statistics and you start to be concerned and it, it, it speaks volumes to the nature of what we are communicating to the world as Christian. Are we followers of Jesus Christ? Are our words and our actions giving them an excuse not to believe, other than just the fact that they hate God. I hate God, but look, these are your messengers. So they had nothing in Jesus that they could, even though they hated him, they hated him without cause. And this brings to bear something that really blows uh, the depravity argument right out of the water. All right? Here are unregenerate people Okay, the world is unregenerate, unchurched people watching your life 
and as they watch your life, what are they expecting that they would call you a hypocrite for not producing? They're expecting righteousness, aren't they? In your speech and in your actions. How can a, a totally depraved, incapable person have that kind of moral compass? Even though they don't live it themselves, they expect it out of you. Where did they get the idea? And the fact is, is that they have the same moral dilemma in them that all men have, that we know what is right, but when it comes to choosing, we choose what is wrong. And that makes us all morally responsible. And so they know what a Christian should look like. And they're not saying, and and so they do make evaluations of our words and our actions. And Jesus Christ says, you know, I came and I did and I spoke and now they have no excuse for their sin. They don't just need to hear the truth once. They need to hear truth coming out of us all the time. They need to see truth being lived before us and they can recognize the difference. They truly can. And too many times we are going to be guilty because we have given them an excuse not to believe. And I... I, carry that same weight on my shoulders. When the Bible says, am I guilty of the blood of other men? What is that? Well, when I don't say and do those things that are reflective of my Christian faith, then I bear some guilt there. Because I've given them another excuse. Because not only did they hate him without a cause, but now they can say, well, your messengers did a lousy job of presenting righteousness and holiness to us. And they would be true. Is it enough to get them off the hook and out of hell? No, because they're still guilty. But it makes us somewhat responsible, doesn't it? And so when Jesus Christ comes to now what the disciples are going to have to do, that your words, that your um, deeds are going to have to testify of me, we necessarily, there we go, have verse 26. When the helper comes, among the helps that he gives us, and we already studied this under the Holy Spirit for a few weeks, when the helper comes, um, he's going to testify of me. Well, thank the Lord there's more help than just you. All right, that there is help. And we already studied that, and it goes into chapter 16 where Paul or John is going to, Jesus really, the speaker here, is going to develop how Holy Spirit testifies of Jesus Christ in men's hearts and minds. So we've studied that, and now we want to see that our cooperative with that. And so Holy Spirit comes on, he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And uh, even though we do a poor job of communicating to them that they're sinners by us not being sinners, by what righteousness is, by defining it in our life and speech, and that we are recognizing that there's a judgment to come. What we lack, what we miss, represent in those three categories to the world, Holy Spirit still is capable of convicting them. So we have a secondary role. His is primary. He'll testify of me. He is the one that will convict, and that is the, his job, and he is good at it. 
<laughs> we don't have to supplement his work. He has to supplement our work, okay? And there's a lot of preachers, a lot of people out there that think it's their job to convict people. No, it is not. Do we confront them with sin? Yes. What mechanism do we use? Well, the best mechanism to use is the Word of God. Use the law. The law convicts us, right? And so just, just the Ten Commandments alone. I mean, we're guilty, 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 guilty. Not a problem. But, the, but even though I can convince someone they're guilty, doesn't mean I convict them that, of their guilt. Because some people say, I'm guilty, so what? Who are you to judge? Well, I'm nobody. God is holy, holy, holy. I can tell them that, but I can't make them feel the pangs, the sorrow over their sin. Holy Spirit does that. Godly sorrow, Romans tells us, leads to repentance. Can't have repentance without godly sorrow. So God says, I'm going to do my part. But we have this cooperative. We are engaged, remember, because we are the one, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So not only is the Holy Spirit working in their life to convict them, he is working in our life to share with them the testimony. And thus we come to verse 27. You also, that is along with Holy Spirit, will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And you might say, well, that doesn't apply to me, that last phrase. And that's why people a lot of times isolate this, say this is really only for the disciples. And I would contend with you that what God gave them, he also instructs us in. But he says, you're going to have to bear witness. And we have that witness. And I want you to understand that why John writes this, why Matthew wrote, why um, Mark wrote, and why we have these Gospels, why we have the Scripture is these individuals bearing witness who were eyewitnesses of the, and ear witnesses of, God, of Christ's works, of his words, of the resurrection, of this storyline. And they bore witness in the book of Acts. Even Paul is able, he says, born out of time, but, but even he had a personal witness. If you, he had to be around somewhere during Jesus' ministry. He wasn't... Uh, a full, probably a full Pharisee, because he was a young man, but uh, uh, he was certainly involved in the Pharisaical school while Jesus was on the earth. He was certainly there and witnessed that. And then he had this eye witness, <laughs> which caused blindness for him, on the road to Damascus. So he had this personal encounter with the resurrected Lord. And so we have these specific witnesses that they bear witness of the facts of that and we have that witness at our disposal and so yes use your scriptures uh, share them with people this is the account of jesus christ you have it we have it from beginning to end literally from the beginning in the beginning God created, and, and sometimes you start there. It's okay. In apologetics, uh, that's a great place to start is the creation account, uh, and we go right through it. We have it from the beginning to the end. And so we are called to bear witness, and obviously we have Matthew 28, 19, 20. Uh, we have Mark. We have, uh, we have Acts 1. We have all these passages that command us to go out and make disciples, to preach the word of God to the whole world with an expectation that some will follow after him. 
And we have examples of that throughout Acts. We have examples of that in the, in the epistles of here's the gospel that I've communicated to you, uh, that Jesus Christ, that he came, he, he died according to the scriptures. So I'm using the scriptures to present that Jesus Christ fulfilled that requirement. He died according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, and rose again according to the scriptures. Well, we can make that same declaration to people that Paul made to the Corinthian people, we can make to the people around us. And so in our speech, in our words, and in our actions, we are called to be a cooperative with, with Holy Spirit. Can he do it on his own? I don't like the question. Because as soon as you ask the question, you're revealing something about your heart. What are you revealing? You're revealing that you might not be interested in this partnership. And if that's the case, then I would contend with you, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ yourself. Because if we're abiding in the vine, if we are are walking in, in belief in him, not only as Savior, but as our Lord and our Master, our God, and we are uh, seeking to bear fruit to his glory, we are seeking to be obeying his commandments, we should not be hesitant at this responsibility to bear witness of Christ, but we should be anticipating it and looking forward to it, not trying to find some way to weasel out of it. Well, can't Holy Spirit do that without your help or mine? Um, and again, that is a, really a Calvinistic model. The Holy Spirit has to regenerate them before they can even be receptive to your message. Um, that is wrong. He testifies of Christ. We testify of him also. It is a cooperative endeavor that we are engaged in. What's fascinating is while Holy Spirit is working in them, he should be working in us to do what? To give us the very words to speak. Because in different circumstances with different people, you might need to say the gospel somewhat differently. But you always need to do it in righteousness and in truth and in love. And if those are not characteristic of your life, then you are giving them an excuse not to believe. And trust me, the world is more than capable of coming up with their own excuses not to believe. They don't need any help, but we've been helping them a lot by our hypocritical lives. That when we go from God's word and we see a selfless Savior, we behave as selfish people. Yeah, selfishness is a, is a hypocritical life choice that a believer exercises that gives an excuse to the world not to believe. Because they're selfish. They already know they're selfish. They want to see something different out of you. Selflessness, which is what Christ portrayed. And we can go right down the line. Boom, 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 boom. What does the world expect a Christian to be like? And where do they get those ideas? Because they're ignorant of God's word. They know a few verses, don't judge me, things like that. Uh, but they're largely ignorant of God's word. Where do they get the concept of what Christians should be like? Because they know what nice is. They know what nice people are like. And so when they encounter someone, and we say, and they, and they try to compliment us, or maybe ask us, why are you so nice? Why are you doing this? Uh, or they say in a derogatory term, why are you such a goody-goody? Why don't, why don't you ever get in trouble? Because misery, you know, everyone loves company when they're doing evil. 
That's why we have gangs. Because <laughs> individually, they're all little cowards, and that's why they have to form gangs to do evil. Okay? And so we understand that that's in their heart, in their life. And so we want to confront them with something very different from that. They know what evil is, and they know they're not, they're not exercising, they're not good people, they're not nice people, not on the level that you're living in front of them, or should be. And so we witness to Christ by word and by what we do, that we do the works of the Father, and that the world is actually looking for you to do the works of the Father. That you, we are compassionate, that, but yet firm that we recognize the difference between being taken advantage of and of genuinely caring for people, that we care for one another, that we are selfless, that we are righteous, that we're going to do the right thing, that we don't tell lies, we don't represent the truth, we're not engaged in that, but rather we are, we are on a path of not being perfect, but striving after the perfection of Christ. That when I fail, I acknowledge it, imagine that, and I ask people to forgive me. Because you are going to fail. You're still carrying a dead body with you, a corpse called your sin nature. And it has influence even though it doesn't have power. And so we are called to be his witnesses. And I want you to notice the very next verse after being called to be his witnesses. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. The point of stumbling is lost to us of its public nature. Satan wants you to stumble, to thwart your capacity to witness to Christ. See, he can function on their side and he can distract them from hearing the gospel. He can try to dissuade them. He can could, he could do all of that. But what does he do in reference to the believer is simply make you stumble. And so one of the hallmarks of when is the gospel most powerfully presented is when the world hates us, abuses us, and we not just take it with our jaws clenched, as some stubborn will, that, that's, the world's capable of doing that, but we take it and we rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer for his name's sake, and we pray for those that abuse us, we love on them, even while they hate on us and spit at us and, and rape us and, and slaughter us. We'll pray for you. We'll pray for them. We'll do good to them. That, and, and that's why wherever persecution is gone, the gospel hasn't been snuffed out, but rather it has just burst into flames. The worst thing that the world can do is be violent against Christians, true Christians. Why? Because if we're true Christians, testifying of Christ, our words and actions are, put on, are just magnified. We're mistreating them and mistreating them and mistreating them and they aren't bitter because we've ripped out every root of bitterness out of our life. They don't speak evil. They don't get revenge. They don't do any of that. They, they, they pray for us and they keep speaking the truth to us. And again and again, the testimony of those who 
have gone before and have been martyred, and then people said, we didn't understand what we were doing, and, and the very hands that murdered Christians become servants of God and are folded in prayer. And this has gone on throughout the church history. But as I said several weeks ago, Satan has changed his tactic here in this country. And it's extraordinarily effectual for him, not for us. And that is to just wear us down. So that now we look like, sound like, behave like, get divorced like, commit suicide like, commit crimes like, have contentious relationships like, we work like, we, the world. We have nothing to witness of because there's no distinction. There's nothing different about us, fundamentally different. And we should be presenting righteousness to the world, radical righteousness, radical holiness that they get a hold of pretty quick and go, what is so weird about you? Why do you care about me? You don't even know who I am. And so we have opportunities to do that. And the amazing thing is that as our society degenerates, and it is degenerating, very, it, is, it is going to the sewer, that we aren't going to the sewer with it. And so while they're out there calling people misogynists and all this other thing and, and haters, that we go out there and I, I, in public, I, well, I don't just do it in public, I do it in private too, but <laughs> I'm still out there behaving like a gentleman. And I have not found any woman yell at me and be disgusted that I held the door for her. I did it at iMart this week. I had my grandkid with me and I said, we're going to hold the door for this gal right behind me. Hold the door, Trevor. I'm holding the door, but he's got to learn to do it too. Oh, well, thank you. And you're going to teach your... Yeah, I'm going to teach him how to do that. Because you see, the world has lost gentlemanliness. We've degraded it. We've, We've destroyed it in my generation, in my lifespan. It is just... And so we are going to behave like that. And then when someone says that, um, what's your response? I'm just a really nice guy. Oh, no. Oh, don't take the glory. You've just had, you've opened a door to witness of Christ. As an open door. And so when we have these opportunities, we want to lay hold of them and give them no excuse. And so they should see everything in our life that points to goodness and fairness, to rightness. And yes, they can recognize it. They are capable of that. And shame on those that teach otherwise. They're capable of recognizing it in us. And when they see it, they are taken aback by it. There was a time when I was engaged with several people online and, and it was just when my book was coming out and he says, I suppose you sell your book at church. Yeah, that sounds about right. And I'm like, no, you'll not be able to buy my book at my church. It's not even on the back table. 
and even if you come to my house, I don't think you'll be able to buy one. <laughs> and I go, oh, well, that's unusual. I was like, we don't sell stuff at our church. Well, that's very rare. Well, here's an unbelieving person who has obviously had some church background and has, or perhaps on TV, and it's like, no, we're not about selling anything. We're about giving stuff away, particularly salvation is the gift of God. And you can't pay it for it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. And it took them aback. They didn't know how to deal with that because that's an argument they were always capable of using. And uh, similarly, I've had those situations, well, the church is all about getting my money. I was like, I don't want any of your money. Period. That's why we don't even pass an offering plate here. I don't want anyone to feel compulsed to put it in there for any reason. What do we want? We want to serve, not be served. We are here to do the works of the Father. We are here to bear fruit to his glory. We are here to be witnesses of him in his, in his absence. When he was here, um, it was confrontational. You know, I mean, and so we are called now to do that and to uh, be so righteous that it becomes confrontational. Yeah, to live and work so hard and so godly that it, in its nature becomes confrontational because we're making a declaration and that is that I live on a different in a different standards than you are living and it's not because I chose to be a better person it's because God has made this difference in my life but let me let there be no mistake the world wants you to stumble so Jesus Christ says listen they're going to hate you just like they hated me, and you have to live righteously and testify of me while they are abusing you. And that's exactly what we find happening in the book of Acts, right? That's exactly what we have from uh, Peter and from uh, the other disciples who got whipped by the, by the Pharisees, uh, the Sanhedrin, and abused by them, and they left rejoicing. It's what we hear in, in, the, in the Philippian deep jail cells of, of prisoners who have, who have been beaten against the law, maltreated by the law. Can you believe that? You have a lawsuit you could hold. Oh, well, we don't need to do that. We're going to give glory to God. Singing. Down there in the cell, singing. What kind of impact does that have? upon a jailer. And then having the opportunity to run away because the, the chains have fallen off, the, the doors have flown open, that we don't run away. We stay right there because that man's life depends on me staying in this cell. What have I just communicated? We care more about you than our liberty. And I ask you the question, how many in the Christian church today in this country have communicated that to the world, that we care more about their salvation than our liberty? We have taunted, taught, we have, we, have, we have communicated that liberty is everything to us. Nonsense. We want to exercise all of our liberties that this nation provides us and, and we're going to go to court if they try to take away our liberty. Oh, nonsense. 
That is not our greatest, our, our greatest gem. It is not our treasure. It is not our liberties. Our greatest treasure is the gospel. And it has been souls that we long after. Not the exercise of liberty. That's an American lie. And all of our churches are engaged in it. Instead of saying, we don't even need our, we, we willingly surrender our liberty because we care about people's souls more than our personal comforts, more than our quote-unquote rights. And there's Paul and Silas. They weren't doing it begrudgingly. Oh, man, we got to stay in here, so maybe we They were singing. And a man gets saved and his household. This is the power of witness. With the right words and the right actions put together with the power of the message of Jesus Christ and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit coming into that, and boom, it, it impacts people. Does that mean they're all going to trust in Christ their Savior? No, but a jailer now and then will. And an understudy of a Pharisee just might be challenged even while he was watching and consenting to the death of your brethren. Why do you think the Jews were so afraid of Saul of Tarsus when he came back from Damascus that they hid from him? They wouldn't meet with him because everyone knew who he was. He was the hatchet man for the Pharisees. He's trying to sneak his way in. He's a pretender just to expose us all so they could... And one guy named Barnabas is... Who cares? Who cares? What's our life worth if we can win him for Christ? Now, he had already made a conversion experience. And remember, even Ananias and Damascus was like, uh, Lord, are you sure about this guy? <laughs> you want me to go share the gospel with him? Um, he's likely to, to imprison me or kill me. Are you sure about that? And he's willing to risk that loss of life and liberty for the sake of the gospel in Saul's life. These people, these men, were witnesses of radical Christianity that we don't even recognize anymore. That I'm not going to be out here advocating my rights. And, and we're all out there to get to, to political activism and, and we don't think that bakers should be treated badly um, by homosexuals. Um, why not? We should expect them to treat us badly. And we should love and pray for them, give them the truth, not take them to court to win our rights. But you see, the mentality is there in, our, in us that we have these liberties and that they are of greater value than the souls of the men around us. And the disciples didn't have that. And praise God, Jesus didn't have that. Gave up his life. 
for the souls of the men around him, including those that screamed out, crucify him, crucify him. And it would be cut to the heart when Peter says, him who you crucified, God has raised from the dead. And they said, what must we do to be saved? This is what putting this all together means. Now, how does it relate to our prayer life? I've gone a lot longer than I expected with that. Um, they are in cooperation, just like your witness and the, and the Spirit's witness are in cooperation, so is your witness and your praying. So we pray for opportunities to share the gospel. We pray for those to whom we have shared the gospel, but those prayers are are weak when they aren't backed up by a life that is representative of the gospel. And so I can go out on the street corner and I can hand someone a track and say, uh, that says the four spiritual laws or whatever, here's how to get saved, and, and, and pray that they read the track and then go and goof off at work and not earn my salary. And not abide in Christ, not not do any of the other requirements here that we have and, and disobey his commands in other areas of my life because, well, I have a cultural reason not to, or I, I, I'm the exception to the rule, apparently, uh, not just you individually, but you as a generation. We're the exception to the rule. Uh, never mind that for 2,000 years the church has been doing this, but now we don't do it in this generation. Never mind the Bible says it, but we don't have to follow it, thanks largely to social movements in this country and our history. And then we wonder why our witness is ineffectual and our praying about our witnessing is ineffectual is because we're not backing it up with words and deeds that testify of Jesus Christ 24-7. Are we abiding in Christ sufficiently that our life itself is so radicalized that it immediately brings confrontation and therefore we are 100% always dependent upon God, which means we're going to be in prayer to him about every opportunity, not only to communicate Christ directly, but also indirectly. And uh, that is a step in spiritual maturity that frankly takes a long time in our society today because you have so few examples of it. Even me as a young pastor, I didn't exercise myself in that manner. And it's frightening to think of how many people would have used that as an excuse not to believe. And how it damaged my capacity to pray for my church, for their needs, for the lost around us, for the work of the church universal. And so we are called to be consistent witnesses in word that we speak to them and that we do things among them so that at the end they have no excuse for their unbelief from our end. They have no excuse for not believing based upon their interaction with me. 
because they've seen the consistency, they've heard the testimony, they've heard the, the attitude of submission, they've, heard, they've seen the selflessness, they have seen love, they, 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 they can see peace, and yes, you can see that on people's faces when they're at peace. They see that. They see joy. And they will ask the reason for the hope that is in you. Why are you so hopeful? Why are you not out there fighting for your rights? Why is liberty so cheap to you? Because the souls of men are so costly. It cost my Lord his life to redeem men. How can I not let it cost me? He's already given me an eternal inheritance that's waiting for me. And we have a spectacular situation here. Sometimes I kind of think, wouldn't it be great as, every, as soon as you trust in Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, the next thing you do, you get to go right to heaven? You know, shoop. I call it the immediate rapture. You know, as soon as you believe, you get to be raptured to heaven. Wouldn't that be great? But then... That's selfish. Are you going to live your life for yourself? Not just yourself. Let's pray. Since my battery went dead, I guess I'm done. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for this opportunity to learn from your word and to be instructed by it. Lord, we know that our society, our Christian culture has degraded right along with the world. And Lord, give us the wisdom, give us the desire to conform ourselves to your word more and more, to be honest about that and to be radical in it. And we know, Lord, that that will put us at odds with the world in many times and and that it'll be our propensity to fight for our liberties. Lord, give us instead an urge to fight for the gospel to be evident in us and heard by those to be seen and heard by those around us regards the cost and lord we pray that cautiously when we look at the testimony of the brethren we don't know that we're up to that kind of faith that we're willing to suffer for your namesake. Is willing to count everything lost for the excellence of your name. And knowing you better. And making you known to those around us. But Lord, you've called us to serve you. And we pray you might give us wisdom and discernment to do so. In Christ Jesus' name we pray.